really easy to figure out. If an operator doesn't have a Clean Water Act permit, you just FOIA, a Freedom of Information Act it. Hi, this is Neil, and it's time for a special bonus edition of Cannabis Daily. On November the 3rd, over 400 industry leaders, investors, and policymakers gathered at the New York Academy of Medicine to discuss the future of the New York cannabis market. Here is one of the panels at that event. By the way, tickets are now on sale for the 2023 conference in October next year. Get them now at CannabisNewYork.live. This panel's called Building an Ethical Industry. The topic of this panel discussion is building an equitable industry. And because I know a good, almost all of the panelists, I'm very comfortable in and confident in this conversation. Please welcome Mike Arbach, uh, general partner and founder of Subversive Capital. Uh, Mark Ross, head of impact and ESG at Vicente Sederberg. Uh, we have Vlad, CEO and co-founder of Happy Monkey and someone I call a friend, Mona Zhang, one of the leading and most respected cannabis journalists, Mona Zhang of Politico. Come on up everybody. Thank you all for coming out today and thank you to the panelists for being here. Um, since we're in New York, I feel like we should kind of start out with the New York market and how that's going. And Vlad here is an applicant for one of the first round of retail licenses. Um, so I'm just wondering from your perspective as a card applicant, how do you feel like the, you know, the program is going, the rollout is going? Do you feel like New York is doing a good job of creating an ethical industry here? That's a great question, Mona. I am really proud right now to be from the Empire State because no matter what happens, you know, I'm a firm believer that intention is everything and character is destiny. And just the simple intent of acknowledging the legacy market here in New York, which has never been acknowledged anywhere else. And to try to give social equity and legacy applicants a first mover advantage makes me very optimistic about the future because we have yet to see that be the approach anywhere else. So we know what doesn't work. I don't know if this is gonna work or not, but I believe the good intentions are there. So I'm very optimistic about the future. And um, for the other panelists on the state on the stage, you guys come from and are involved in other states. Uh, I mean, like, what can we learn about the pitfalls from other attempts at social equity and making an equitable industry from, you know, from Colorado, from California? Uh, so it's an interesting question because I've been following this space now for a number of years. And every time a new state comes on board, it, it's the gold standard. I still remember when Illinois was going to be the gold standard. And uh, in California, Los Angeles was going to be the gold standard of social equity. And what we've learned along the way is that um, there are a lot of issues with trying to develop a social equity program that is both effective in building generational wealth, as well as reinvesting in communities of color decimated by the war on drugs. I, I like what New York's doing with regard to on the front end, uh, allocating tax revenue into those communities. 40% of the tax revenue needs to go back into those communities. I like how half the licenses are going to be social equity licenses, and it's a broad category of social equity. Um, so I think it just, we continue to uh, innovate and, um, and, and try to improve upon these systems, but we don't know until uh, these licenses get issued and, and, uh, and, and these businesses get up off the ground. So... 
Yeah, I don't think any of the states have done a good job. Um, I think it's uh, social equity has been an abject failure in, in our industry and in most industries, honestly. Um, it's usually an afterthought. Uh, policymakers use it as a way to, you know, pass their, you know, legislative desires. But for the most part, the beneficiaries of this state-by-state legal industry have been a bunch of white men. Um, and the thing I like about New York is that it's telling these white men that, you know, have, uh, for the most part, have, um, had these medical licenses for the past few years that, you know, you're not first in line. Um, we do things a little bit differently here. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I think there's been some missteps. Um, we have a very active legacy market here. Um, and now we have an open uh, out in the open legacy market, um, you know, with uh, stores popping up pretty much everywhere, selling both New York uh, grown goods that have been, you know, grown and sold in New York State ad infinitum since the Dutch. Um, and uh, and a lot of them are selling California, regulated California product uh, that they're bringing over here by the truckload. And I don't think you can put that genie back in the bottle. I mean, the only true social equity program is the end of prohibition. Um, on the federal level. We need to end prohibition on the federal level um, and begin to use as an opportunity to rectify the harms of prohibition, which have disproportionately harmed people of color in this country. That's what I think. Um, I read a, an interesting article today in The Filter written by Alex Lechtman, and the article was pretty much about how, you know, the way that New York regulators are sort of like trying to keep big business out of the market is actually hampering capital that could help social equity applicants. What do you think about that take? Like, do we need big business to, you know, fund social equity applicants? And what are some of like the benefits and pitfalls of that kind of model? Well, um, I don't know about the rest of the country, but here in New York, you know, this is the financial capital of the world. And I really believe that that is not necessarily an issue here because there's a lot of private money here. And unlike other places, uh, they really understand the market and the culture here. And there's a lot of private money willing to back social equity. So it's not necessarily mean that they need cannabis big business to, to thrive. So I don't think that is necessarily relevant to New York New York City because there is no shortage of capital here if you have an established brand or an established business plan I am pretty sure that if anybody was to get a license with or without big business they would be able to find capital yeah and here we also have the state creating this 200 million dollar public private fund to invest in um, some of the social equity applicants. Uh, Michael, what do you think about that type of model from a government to sort of stand up these businesses at the outset? That's exactly the right model. So having a social equity fund that's uh, funded through government resources, I think is the right approach. I'm a little concerned about this one. Um, the state has uh, agreed to put up $50 million. We, you know, they've chosen their advisors. Um, and I haven't heard anything about the other $150 million that they're supposed to raise. You know, having been a significant allocator of capital in this industry for over a decade, um, you know, the market right now to raise private capital 
for this industry, particularly in New York, um, as asset prices in New York have just collapsed, um, you know, over the past six months to 12 months, um, I'm not very bullish that the group that they have appointed to raise the $150 million is going to be able to successfully do that. So I think we're going to run into um, a capital shortage um, for these first hundred licenses. Um, and I'm hoping that the state, you know, steps up either with um, additional resources or identifies other pools of capital to support the program. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of bigger cannabis companies, you know, outwardly, they do feel at least some public pressure to support social equity applicants or to support social justice goals in the industry. Um, Mark, do you think that that kind of pressure can, you know, create incentives for bigger businesses to operate in a, a genuine way to partner with social equity applicants? I mean, we've seen a lot of states have tried to do sort of models like have big businesses be incubators for social equity applicants or be like minority partners for social equity applicants. What do you think are like the benefits and potential pitfalls of that kind of model? Yeah, I mean, we experienced a lot of that in the early states that came online, these predatory models with social equity applicants uh, where partnerships were made and then uh, generational wealth was maybe generated for one family uh, and licenses were sold very quickly. I think New York is starting to they have a better handle on those types of arrangements. But in terms of the, the look, there's an ethical responsibility that we have by operating in this space, whether you're a multi-state operator or a small entrepreneur, to start to uh, bring people along from the legacy market, remediate the war on drugs, um, rebuild our communities that were decimated by it. and. What we're also seeing is this confluence of ethical responsibility along with a growing interest just generally in corporate social responsibility, environmental, social, and governance. There's regulatory pressures being put on companies to start to measure their ESG. Uh, and then there, there's a whole bunch of other benefits to having a, a very thoughtful, strategic, integrated, and most importantly, authentic corporate responsibility program, whether it's talent attraction or customer attraction. We know that the cannabis industry is overwhelmingly uh, millennial and Gen Z, uh, and we know our customers are overwhelmingly millennial and Gen Z based on statistics from, from folks that keep those numbers. And those generations care deeply about supporting and working for companies and buying from companies that are authentically committed to these issues. So it's an ethical obligation, but there's also a business opportunity that can move the needle. And I've heard from a lot of card applicants about, you know, being approached by bigger businesses or even small businesses with um, some pretty predatory terms. And I don't know if you've experienced this yourself, Vlad, but do you have any advice for other social equity applicants or even small businesses in general to be aware of when they're looking at some of these offers from, from companies? Yeah, I think that's a great question and a great topic, Mona. I think that the reason that it's gotten such a highlight is because of the situation with the with the past of of social equity and the people that have been the victim of the war on drugs but by nature venture capitalism is predatory so it's really i have experienced it i have been turning investment down probably for like three years because of exactly that and it's just really getting the right people around you or having resources to really vet these things because 
you know, it's it's always going to be a negotiation and anybody putting large capital up is always going to want the lion's share of the profits. It's up to you to know your value and understand it and understand that you don't have to accept these terms and having the resources to be able to tell you what your value are that sometimes, which I think is the biggest issue in this industry, cannot be demonstrated on a spreadsheet because of the fact that it's been a legacy market for 100 years and some of the data cannot be put on a spreadsheet, but is applicable to this industry because we all know that there are brands that, even though you can't see it on the spreadsheet, that have a certain amount of brand awareness data or consumer base that deserve the valuation that they need. But if you don't have the right people to help you through this process, you will probably end up getting a bad deal because it's much more complex than other industries to prove your value in this industry. I also think we should, um, by the way, I would, I'll invest, right? So I've told you that three years ago, two years ago, one year ago. Um, so every time I see you, but um, give me a call. No, I'm kidding. Um, so uh, I think it's really important to dispel this idea that like the cannabis industry is creating this generational wealth opportunity for people, right? The people that have made money in this industry over the past 10 years have primarily been grifters, pump and dumpers, uh, and people that got fired and had to sell out of their stocks at high prices that the, the, you know, with 280E and federal prohibition, it is very hard to make money in this industry. It's very hard to be profitable. It's very hard to do right by your shareholders. Look at the Canadian players that don't have 280E. They've lost, what is it? $15 billion in shareholder capital over the past four years. I mean, Hexo just announced uh, that they spent a billion dollars. Just poof, just lost it. and so, the, you know, the people within this industry are, one, are not inherently ethical people. Because it's this great market, it attracts executives that, you know, have been shown to, you know, conduct themselves in unsavory manners. We've seen the articles and even in Politico about this. Um, you know, I think while New York is looking at this in the right way, I'm afraid that this focus on social equity and retail is going to saddle social equity applicants with um, a part of the supply chain that is really affected by 280E. Um, I think the majority of New Yorkers, particularly in the five boroughs, want their weed delivered. Um, I think we should, you know, allow uh, social equity applicants to, you know, have delivery services with depots. Um, We should try to encourage the parts of the industry, whether it's brands, distribution, you know, other more profitable parts of the industry, or they're going to run into the same difficulties that, you know, the large MSOs have with their retail footprints is very hard to be profitable. Um, so anyway, I'm rambling. But. I want to go back to something you said before about federal prohibition, um, because there is a concern that if, you know, we get rid of federal prohibition, we have federal legalization that opens up interstate commerce, um, that could make it harder for small businesses, social equity applicants to compete, especially if you have, you know, the Amazons of the world getting into the industry. So, like, how do you think federal legalization needs to happen to be able to achieve these goals of social equity programs? Yeah. So I think it's it's going to be a combination of a number of things. But if I think if I'm right and cannabis at the end of prohibition is going to look more like the wine industry, there's a terroir to the wine and there are brands to the wine or like even like the the bourbon or like sort of the spirits industry. 
you're going to have sort of the AB InBevs and the constellations of the world that are going to, you know, mass produce and sell their pre-rolls and packaged and, you know, you'll see it at the corner deli or wherever you're licensed to sell them. Um, but because the end of prohibition and you'll have access to real capital um, and also have access to federal programs uh, like small business loans, et cetera, um, you will be able to create, there will be a number of, you know, craft retail that will be, you know, compelling. There will be large scale growers that will be boutique in certain terroirs. I mean, I'm a huge wine drinker. And so I love BV, it's owned by Diageo, but I also love, you know, the, the wineries that are making, you know, 100 cases of wine um, that sell at a premium. You're going to have that throughout California and Oregon and Washington, even in New York. I think that we will maintain um, a cultivation uh, environment here. Um, New York has some great legacy strains and, you know, going back again to the time of the Dutch. Um, and so I think that the end of prohibition provides the opportunity for true diversity in the industry because it levels the playing field in a way that um, it doesn't today. Um, and I don't think that the MSOs are winners. In fact, I think they're the losers on the, the end of prohibition. Uh, they're very resource intensive. They've got huge infrastructure. You know, none of those facilities have alternative use. If you're growing cannabis somewhere in Bumblefuck, Minnesota, like what are you going to grow thereafter uh, when you're getting your cannabis from, pardon my language, when you're getting your cannabis from Oregon, Washington, California? Um, you know, New Yorkers want access to California cannabis. When I was younger, we used to get like cannabis mailed from Vancouver. Um, remember? <laughs> I used to get it in the teddy bear in college, you know, like, so... It's just, um, I think that the, the legacy market already operates as if prohibition has ended. Um, and when prohibition ends, it's the legacy market that is going to run this industry. This in, the future of this industry is people of color. Um, it is not who you see on television. It's not who you see on stage. Can we talk about a really like bad environmental footprint of these grow operations and limited licensing states? Um, Mark, do you see, you know, like, how is this playing out in, in the advocacy world? Because I guess, you know, these bigger companies, they do have an incentive on their sort of limited licensing, vertically integrated model. And how does that impact and what are companies' responsibility to advocate for programs that are more inclusive? And um, yeah. On the environmental side of things, it's interesting. Obviously, uh, federal legalization will certainly help in that regard because we're not going to be growing cannabis in warehouses in Maine uh, on a large scale. You know, we don't grow bananas like that. We don't grow any agricultural product like that in the world. Uh, so from an environmental standpoint, um, that will certainly help. In the meantime, as we continue to roll out state by state, we're seeing a lot of innovation, uh, both on the tech side. So I think LED lighting has probably gone through massive uh, improvements because of the growing cannabis industry and indoor agriculture, uh, HVAC systems, watering systems, all of that has, um, because of federal prohibition, has forced cannabis companies to start to innovate uh, and these other tech companies are coming along. Um, with regard to um, uh, social equity and social impact, um, yeah, I have to agree with Michael with, on this. I think it's it's uh, it's going to be opening up the floodgates for operators. It's going to lower all the barriers. Uh, let's let's face it, banking 
will help people, but it's not really going to help the MSOs right now. The MSOs have got banking under control. It's the smaller operators, the entrepreneurs that need banking that are right now encountering predatory practices of banks. So, you know, I think overall, I think federal legalization will help on so, so many different fronts. The other thing I'll say from the environmental standpoint, not to jump around, is right now you've got the federal EPA sitting on the guideline, on the, on the sidelines. They're not doing anything. Um, you've got cannabis regulators in each state that don't understand environmental health and safety laws. And so you've got operators out there clearly in non-compliance situations. When federal legalization happens and EPA starts getting involved, if, if frankly, if the plaintiff's bar doesn't get involved sooner with citizen suits, um, we're going to see some, some really significant compliance and enforcement actions against cannabis companies of all sizes um, because it's just... People aren't regulating the environmental health and safety aspects. We saw it in California and Oakland just six, eight weeks ago where an operator got sued uh, for the maximum penalty under the Clean Air Act. Uh, and that's $130 million that a citizens group asked for. And then the Air Quality District in California decided to take action because they couldn't sit on the sidelines and let that happen without doing their part. They put another $2 million fine on the operator and shut them down. So... Federal legalization is going to change things for the better, both in terms of social equity and social impact, in terms of entrepreneurship, as well as environmental. That's really interesting. So those lawsuits you're talking about, are those brought under federal or state law? Without getting too wonky about it, um, most states have primacy over environmental laws. They develop programs that parrot or are more stringent than the federal program. So, But the, the Federal Clean Air Act, Federal Clean Water Act, they all have citizen supervision. So if the state government, if they have primacy, or if the federal government, they're in charge, if they're not enforcing the laws, any citizen could bring a lawsuit after they give 60 days notice. And so you have a bunch of operators also in Oklahoma that just received 60 day notice letters. I think it was somewhere between 25 and 50 operators for not having Clean Water Act permits. It's really easy to figure out if an operator doesn't have a Clean Water Act permit, you just FOIA, a Freedom of Information Act it. And they've been sued also for 37,500 each operator plus attorney's fees. So I think I think this I think the plaintiff's bar is going to start to circle like the sharks that they are, and um, uh, at the end of the day, operators are going to need to get compliant with environmental health and safety. Yeah, Oklahoma is such an interesting example because they legalize medical marijuana with this like very low barrier to entry, unlimited licensing. So many people got in. Of course, they have like an oversaturated market and like plummeting wholesale prices. Uh, but at the same time, it was really easy for any type of entrepreneur to get in the industry. And I saw this as well in Maine reporting on its medical marijuana program where, you know, I met entrepreneurs who started with $500 and a grow tent in their garage. And now they own like multiple dispensaries and they were able to get their start thanks to the low barrier to entry, thanks to the industry being having a relative lack of regulation. I mean, Maine's medical program doesn't have mandatory testing. It doesn't have seat to sale tracking. Um, Vlad, I'm curious for your thoughts, like as an entrepreneur, like is that type of model appealing to you? Like, do you think that would help get more people into the industry or, or do you, you know, prefer like a, a model like New York where there is like this active, you know, licensing rounds specifically target to certain groups? I'm going to say for right now, we'll see how it happens, uh, how, how it ends up being for right now. I like the New York way better because uh, also at the same time, you know, 
when that happens and the licenses go out too fast and anybody can do it, it also makes it hard for consumers to really understand what the difference is between operators and brands and et cetera. And it doesn't really give the value to everything that everybody's doing as much. So I prefer the latter where like, it's not as controlled and limited as it has been in some states, but there is some type of control and some type of rollout because New York hasn't said that there's going to be a cap. They're just not doing it in a one come one come all fashion. So I like the 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 slow growth where the regulators and the market get to correct themselves as things go along. When you do things too fast, there's no way to repair the harm once everything is rolled out overnight. So I like the New York model because I think there's a way for regulators to correct themselves, investors, operators, brands to really see what we're wrong and what we're right as it goes along and more licenses come online than just overnight, you know, 50 million licenses and 50 million stores with licenses coming through, I think will make it difficult for it to be like a really optimized market. Michael, what's your take on the sort of freewheeling, free-for-all, unlimited licensing markets? Yeah, so I agree with uh, Vladimir in the sense that I think like a certain cadence to licenses. Um, and we do this in lots of different license industries, including like, you know, I used to sit on the community board in the East Village in terms of like, you know, how the SLA were to pass out liquor licenses. I mean, they're supposed to be a cadence. Sometimes they uh, they exaggerated in certain areas like Ludlow Street. Um, but uh, but I, I agree with the cadence. But the limited license tapes are just breed corruption, oligopolies, um, and just bad actors. And so, um, uh, I'm not a I'm not a supporter of limited license states. Um, and uh, and New York should be an unlimited license state. And it looks like it's going to be in terms of, I mean, it's not unlimited in the sense that it's at you know as many licenses as possible. But we are we're structuring it in such a way where we will have hundreds of licenses operating within the next few years. I think that the end of prohibition is going to happen within that time frame, and then New York is going to look a little bit different. Um, I don't think this is just going to be sold through dispensaries. I think, um, you know, I think that the delis and anywhere where you can buy alcohol and tobacco, I think is you're going to be able to find cannabis. You're already uh, finding cannabis. I can go to any deli in Soho and buy cannabis. Um, a lot of it is, you know, regulated, packaged um, product from California and other states. Uh, and I think that that's what the future will be here um, is that there'll be interstate commerce and we'll be able to buy it outside of the system. And just as a point, like it was the bootleggers um, that succeeded after the end of alcohol prohibition, right? So it's the, the boot, like if you look at the history of any major alcohol company, they were all bootleggers. They were all involved in the legacy market. It wasn't like the, the people that got the special license to sell alcohol as a medicine in Kentucky that became the, you know, the Pappies and the, you know, the Jack Daniels. It was the bootleggers. Um, and so it, the same thing is happening in the cannabis industry. The future of cannabis is going to be the bootleggers.
Um, so I think like right now we're at an interesting moment with the marijuana legalization movement because for the first time in this election cycle, you're seeing industry money really pouring into legalization initiatives, particularly in particularly in Missouri and Arkansas. I remember two years ago, I was talking to a federal PAC that funds a lot of these initiatives. And the head of the PAC was saying it was so impossible to get cannabis industry interests to donate to these legalization campaigns. Now you have, you know, medical marijuana businesses donating millions of dollars to these campaigns. Um, but at the same time, it is sort of like resulting in a lot of like grassroots advocacy backlash where you see pro marijuana advocates advocating against the legalization initiative because they're afraid it's industry funded and it will create like a monopoly for the existing interests. We were talking a little bit about this earlier, Mark, and I'm like, curious, like, what do you think of how that's like playing out? And, you know, when businesses fund legalization initiatives, like, do they have an obligation to, uh, you know, fund an initiative that is going to benefit many people? Or, you know, are they sort of, I mean, kind of makes sense that they're funding these initiatives that would give them a sort of first crack at the market. Yeah, I don't think anybody should invest in a company or buy from a company that supports limited licenses. I just don't. Um, I don't think anybody should. And that's not just for cannabis, right? Like uh, I'm against oligopolies in all industries. Um, and the fact that we have an industry that is lobbying against things like home grow and lobbying against things like unlimited licenses, like that's not an ethical stance. Um, you know, you were privileged enough to be a white male and be able to raise capital and get licenses in all of these states and have access to lawyers and lobbyists and, you know, institutional capital. Um, but the, but cannabis is wrapped up in the war on drugs. The reason that cannabis is on the schedule, um, directly correlates to, you know, America's racist policies, same in psychedelics, same in cannabis. And this industry has a responsibility to understand that and rectify the wrongs of prohibition. And if you're doing the opposite of that, you don't belong in the industry. Mark, what are you seeing on the ground in Colorado? I mean, this is a little bit off topic because it's psychedelics, but it's like a very similar debate, right? It is a similar debate. We were just having this discussion before we came down here. It's interesting right now. Um, psilocybin is on the, uh, on the ballot in Colorado next week. Um, there are two tracks to it. One is a, a full decrim of psilocybin and some other plant medicines. Uh, and then the other side of the ballot initiative is to regulate and tax and, um, health and safety standards and testing and who's going to be able to be a provider. It's going to be in treatment centers uh, and putting some guardrails on. And so you've got the prohibitionists that hate it completely, all of it. Uh, and then you've got the disgruntled decrim folks that wanted straight up decrim with no guardrails because they are afraid of the same things you just mentioned. The big corporate interests are backing this initiative um, that somehow David Bronner is going to take over the entire psychedelics industry and is going to keep people out of it. And indigenous people aren't being considered. And then you've got indigenous people that are like, we don't want decrim because you're going to have these unlicensed shaman on the decrim side, come in and be able to offer up services and make money and, and, and really uh, take what have been their medicines for generations and bastardize it. And so everyone's shooting arrows at everybody. And I feel bad for my colleagues that are involved in the issue because because I go to these public hearings and I see them taking arrows from all sides. Um, so we're going to see where things land next week. Um, you know, cannabis didn't pass the first time, uh, recreational cannabis in Colorado. And um, we like leading um, the world in some of these issues. And, and I'm, while I'm hopeful um, that 
we'll get there next week. It, it still remains to be seen, and it's getting tighter right now as the decrim folks continue to um, uh, take over the airwaves and 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 use every tool in their toolbox to try to stop this initiative from going forward. Can I just say one thing? I'm an, I'm a big investor in the psychedelics industry, um, and I think it's a little bit different than cannabis in the sense of just the. Um, uh, the biodynamic response to psychedelics, um, not necessarily psilocybin, but some of the, um, the more hallucinogenic um, psychedelics, you know, I think we just need a little bit more research on. Um, I don't think anybody's garden should be regulated by the federal government. Um, you know, if you're growing poppies or you're growing, or you, you know, you're finding psilocybin, et cetera, you should be able to have access to that without the fear of going to jail. Um, but Treatment-resistant depression and mental health issues is an epidemic, uh, not just in this country, but globally. Um, we haven't had a change in the pharmacopoeia of how we treat depression for over 30 years. Um, SSRIs and other ways to treat mental illness is still sort of the standard. Um, we stopped researching this back in the, the 50s and 60s. Um, I do think there's a real role uh, for FDA-approved um, pharmaceutical-grade psychedelics uh, for the treatment of this epidemic, where not everybody just gets access to a garden or can go into or feels comfortable going to a dispensary to get a psychedelic. Um, so I think it's just where I think it's just very different than cannabis. Um, and it also has the change to fundamentally change somebody's behavior within hours of taking it. Um, and that behavior then has, has been adjusted for months, if not years. Um, whereas cannabis doesn't do that, right? You know, you smoke cannabis, you have a great night, but you're back to where you were in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. So much of this is also like, you know, what we're talking about is like balancing sort of like strictly regulating an industry with like access to an industry for consumers and for small businesses. Um, Lad, I'm wondering if you have like, if you could talk to New York's cannabis regulators, like how would you want them to balance that, you know, in terms of regulating the industry, lab testing, making sure the product is safe versus, you know, over-regulating and keeping people out of the market because the cost of compliance is so high? I think that's a great question, Mona, and a great topic because I think that it's going to make the biggest difference, which nobody really thinks about throughout the country as far as like the legacy market and the legal market. So people always go to let's arrest our way out of here or let's find our way out of here, over-regulate the market. But the truth is that they really thought about it. Michael mentioned it earlier. And you took away 280E and you made the legal market compete fairly as far as pricing with the legacy market. And instead of, if I'm going to pay $40 for an eighth from the guy on the corner or the bodega, but the compliant tested cannabis has it for $40, I'm going to go to the compliant tested one. And right there, organically, consumers would go more to the legal market organically the legacy market would be trying to find more ways to go into the legal market without us having to create prohibition 2.0 as we've seen in other states that does not work and we just repeat the same cycle from before because the reality is mona the legacies market has been around for a hundred years it's not going anywhere the best chance you have is 
We know that consumers purchase based on price and quality. If the price and the quality is matching what the legacy market has on the legal market, organically, it would tremendously tilt over. But that is never a thought because everybody's always thinking about how much money they can grab from the government to investors to corporate. If you made it fair as far as like making it easy to be compliant and not get overtaxed, then you would be able to fairly compete with the legacy market. And instead of trying to arrest these people, create pathways for them to create generational wealth instead of having to be ostracized and persecuted again. So I think that that's what I would tell the regulators. Look at this as making the legal market financially competitive with the legacy market instead of finding ways to arrest your way out of a problem that you will not. So I'm really sad that Karina couldn't be with us today because I really wanted to ask her about provincial monopolies in Canada. But I would love to get some of your thoughts on monopolies because um, in Uruguay, there's basically a government monopoly on cannabis plus the sort of like non-commercialized co-ops. And uh, in Canada, we have provincial monopolies. And in New Hampshire in the last session, there was a legalization bill that would have implemented a, a state monopoly on cannabis production. Um, so what are your thoughts on that model on creating, a, a, I don't know, an ethical industry? Well, we know monopolies are not good in any industry. And like, I think that that's the part right there where, you know, New York is really doing a good job in preventing that as much as possible. From right now, I think they came out with a recent law last week, TPI, where if you're a cannabis investor investing in car license or otherwise, you cannot have other investments throughout the country. You have to divest or not be able to invest. And measures like this help lower the chances of monopolies happening because in a place like New York, I understand their concern. You know, there's all the eyes of all the most wealthy people in the world, and they're all trying to find ways to monopolize it. So I really commend New York State at trying to really make sure that that doesn't happen because the reality is that we've seen that the expertise of other industries, people that were really successful in finance, in CPG, etc., doesn't necessarily apply or make them successful in the cannabis industry. Because I think the part that everybody misses, Mona, is that just like the legacy market has a hundred year act, hundred years actively in New York, so does the consumer. The consumer has a hundred years purchasing from legacy, also. So I really think that monopolies hopefully will not happen because then we will end up with a lot less quality cannabis and not be able for people like myself to create generational wealth after we have been the people that built this industry in the last hundred years by being arrested and persecuted and et cetera. If that happens, people like me don't stand a chance and I don't think that's good for anybody, 
for the government, for society, for the industry as a whole. So we're about out of time, but really quickly, what do you think about government monopolies? Yeah, I mean, I think like if we look at, I mean, Canada's, all of their industries are monopolies, right? So their banks are monopolies, their liquor distribution's monopoly, like everything's a monopoly in Canada. So it's it's sort of a, a, a different animal up there. So I think in the end that you're going to have three or four, three cannabis companies um, that supply 90% of the market in Canada at some point when most of these companies go out of business or they all merge together. Um Having government monopoly on a consumer product makes no sense to me. Um, and so I, I'm not supportive of it. But I know like, you know, the alcohol stores in New Hampshire and some states it's it's worked and um, and consumers seem to like it. Uh, I just don't, I don't see that it works in this industry. It could work in other industries. Um, I think some states do it to keep costs down. Um, so I'd love to see like a government monopoly in pharmaceuticals and give us the price that, you know, cost plus 10, right? Um, you know, I think we'd all be for that. Uh, so I think it just depends. Well, thank you all so much for coming out and to the panelists for joining me here today. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks thank to Prohibition Partners. Thank you, everybody. Uh, Michael, Mark, Vlad, and Mona. Now you can secure your seat at next year's event right this second. It's scheduled for the 4th of October, 2023. Tickets are on sale at CannabisNewYork.live. You'll find the link in the show notes.